Hey everybody, it's Christy Wolf here. I'm a partner in Kelly Dry's advertising group, and I'm delighted to have with me Jacqueline Metzinger and Joe Green, also from Kelly Dry, in our litigation and environmental groups, respectively. We wanted to take a few minutes just to review some of the trends that we're seeing in the food and, and personal care spaces, um, because a lot has happened both over 2021 and even in the first year, couple of months of 2022. And so with that, I, the, the, one of the major trends that I think we're seeing is an uptick in Prop 65 litigation. Um, Joe, any thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks, Christy. Uh, I thought it would be interesting, and I do this periodically, to, you know, to take a quick look back at the enforcement of California's Proposition 65 program. And for those that are, might be unfamiliar, that's the you know, no, notorious state law that really has national and, and even global effects it generally, it requires businesses to provide a warning before exposing a person in California to one of the over now 900 chemicals uh, listed by the state as either a carcinogen or a reproductive toxin. Uh, and that requirement really reaches up through the supply chain from the retailer to the distributor, to the manufacturer, to the brand, if the product is, as long as the product is distributed or sold in California. So it really can encompass many more companies that are, you know, you're not technically even maybe doing business directly in California, but you're shipping a product with your name on it into California, or it's shipped by somebody else that you contract with. So, you know, there are many details of, about the program that we could talk hours for here, but, you know, and how liability falls and various exemptions. But just to suffice to say that if your product contains one of the many substances that are listed, and you're doing business in California, you should be alert to the pitfalls of Prop 65. And, and the reason for that is my primary point of today. And, you know, enforcement of Prop 65, which is primarily through the private plaintiff bounty hunters, we call them fondly, though the AG does step in from time to time, that enforcement is at an all-time record pace through the last quarter of, of 2021 and, and into 2022. No pandemic slowdown here whatsoever. Uh, and this despite efforts to rein in what are, I think, commonly viewed and not uh, unfairly viewed as the many abusive plaintiff actions that are brought each year. Regardless, the number of notices of violation filed by plaintiffs has tripled in the last decade and quintupled since 2008. Um, my latest blog post, you know, has a couple of eye-opening charts, uh, and it shows, you know, over the last two years, so the pandemic, 40% more actions were initiated versus the two years prior to the pandemic. And that compares, so you're at about somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 or more actions each year. So you're seeing, obviously, dozens, hundreds a month. Uh, and that compares to only around 600 or so uh, in 2008, for example, uh, and, you know, and the time period, this, the law came into effect back in the eighties. Um, and it was, you know, controversial since its inception, but that trajectory for enforcement has steadily risen and continues to do so. And, and, but interestingly, the key culprits remain mostly the same, uh, something like 90% or more of, of cases involve a handful of those 900 substances. The two big ones by far, though, are phthalates. There are six different phthalates listed, but we kind of treat them as a, as a group. Uh, and so phthalates and lead account for at least 70% or more of all cases. 
Um, the other big one, uh, which we've seen a number of, it's not quite in the stratosphere uh, as the other two we just mentioned, but uh, acrylamide, which is a sort of a newcomer on the scene, at least over the last decade, uh, and, and it does account for some of the increase. That, that's a substance that is uh, formed during heat processing or roasting, baking of certain foods. Uh, that's another source of significant alleged violations. It was the subject of the infamous coffee case that I could talk about uh, for, for a long time, uh, but it's probably a prime example of how abusive these, these can be, these cases can be. Um, so, and then after you, uh, after acrylamide, you see uh, a, a fair number of cases involving arsenic, cadmium, uh, bisphenol A and benzene or diesel emissions. So that, that handful of chemicals is responsible for almost all cases. Uh, though there are occasional flare-ups of cases involving other substances, you know, currently, I'm, I'm involved with a number of cases um, that have to do with hexavalent chromium. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, there was a burst of cases involving uh, THC and marijuana smoke when those uh, products became uh, legal, particularly in, uh, in California uh, and elsewhere. You um, saw a burst of those cases. But primarily, you're looking at that half dozen or so uh, substances as the source, you know, probably the ones that you should be on most red alert for. That said, uh, looming on the horizon, um, we are starting to see uh, what I expect to be a very large number of cases involving the, uh, the so-called forever chemicals, the PFAS chemicals, the perfluorinated compounds. Um, you know, historically, they've been used for things like waterproofing and as flame retardants and, uh, uh, and are found in a wide range of products from uh, footwear to textiles to cosmetics. In fact, there's a big uh, cosmetics issue that's popped up recently with a, a study out of Notre Dame <coughs> showing that there is a, you know, a prevalence of the PFAS in those uh, products. Um, and that the presence of those chemicals in consumer products is really a big deal. Um, it's probably the number one chemical regulatory issue, whether Prop 65 or otherwise both at the federal level and in practically every state. Um, you know, finally, I guess I'd just like to note that about a dozen plaintiff groups bring the vast majority of these cases. You know, it's an extremely active area in large part because, well, and this is why for most of my Prop 65 clients, uh, or, or my, for most of my clients, that Prop 65 is easily the most frustrating and bewildering regulatory program they confront. And that's because the burden of proof is essentially on the defendant. Uh, the plaintiff only needs to show that there is some exposure to a listed chemical and that no warning was provided. That's a pretty low bar, um, despite some of the efforts by California to, to make that bar a little higher. Still not a very high bar for the plaintiff to uh, get over. And at that point, the burden then shifts to the company to show that the level of exposure was safe, as defined by California. Uh, so that's where another of the big problems lie, is that the safe level is usually at least an order of magnitude lower than even the most stringent regulatory standards, whether that be CPSC, FDA, EPA, OSHA, or typical industry standards for a product. So you can be compliant with all of those, such as the CPSC lead requirements, but Prop 65 may require a warning anyway, because the lead standard under that program is extremely low. And it's also important to remember that it's based not on the level of exposure, not on, it's based on the level of exposure and not on content. So you, even if you have, uh, even if you know there's some exposure, you know, your, your product contains some amount of a listed chemical, especially one as common as lead. 
Uh, and then, you know, we're finding this. So lead is naturally occurring at low levels in almost anything that comes out of the ground, right? Whether that be metal products or carrots or uh, baby food, you know, ingredients. If you have any lead or phthalates or, and now I think we're going to see PFAS, you can do a risk assessment. And, and while that's good practice, unless you are confident that your levels are going to be under what the very low California standard is, then the defendant knows they can bring a case if you don't warn. And then you have the burden of proof of that it's safe, that that safe level exposure and no warning was required. And at trial, you know, even if you're backed up by strong science, uh, you may not meet that burden of proof in the face of the plaintiff's experts. You know, it's, it's, uh, it can be a uh, 50-50 chance or, or, or worse, depending on, um, you know, the case. And, you know, even if you win, it's expensive. And so many of these cases settle. You know, we're talking, some of them are modest, fifteen, twenty thousand, forty thousand dollars $40,000. Uh, but it adds up and, and these can get up to 60 and increasingly now over $100,000 penalties, along with an agreement to post warnings. And the plaintiffs know all this. So, well, you know, fortunately, there are some good defenses and best practices that you can use to minimize your risks uh, or maybe to uh, demonstrate to a plaintiff that you're not the low hanging fruit they're looking for. But that's that's for another podcast for us to get into. Uh, in the meantime, be aware, um, be alert, especially if you have phthalates, lead, and coming down the pipe, PFOS, or some of the other chemicals I've mentioned today. Uh, you should be taking a look at your products and considering your potential obligations under Prop 65. Uh, thanks, Christy and Jacqueline. Uh, I'll turn it back over to you. Hey, thanks, Joe. That's really helpful information. For anyone who hasn't checked out Joe's blog, the Kelly Green Law Blog, that's K-E-L-L-E-Y, the chart that he has on the Q4 2021 notices of violation is, I think, particularly helpful um, because it lists both the chemicals, the number of notices, and then example products. So if you're in the you know food or personal care space, um, you could use it as a quick reference. Obviously, we can't cover every single chemical and every single type of product that might be um, impacted here, but it's a, it's a good kind of checklist for types of, of products and types of chemicals that, you know, are um, potentially under the scrutinizing eyes of the, the, the plaintiff's bar. Um, so from one shockingly alarming litigation threat to another, Jacqueline, what's going on in the food court? Thanks, Christy. Yeah, so, you know, the food court and, and other courts that typically hear these consumer class actions have been quite active um, throughout 2021 and certainly show no signs of slowing down into 2022. But I just wanted to discuss three recent decisions impacting the food industry that I think are pretty representative of what we're seeing in the courts right now. Um, two victories and then a third case, which is a bit of a mixed bag and a warning going forward. So the first victory um, was in one of the hundreds of vanilla class actions that have flooded the courts over the last year or two. If you haven't been following this issue, class action plaintiffs have been heavily targeting vanilla, vanilla products across the board, including ice cream, yogurt, almond milk, cookies, coffee creamer, basically anything that can be flavored with vanilla, uh, can be and certainly has been the subject of this type of class action litigation. And the general gist of these claims is that the products are not made 
entirely or even predominantly of vanilla beans, but rather contain other sometimes synthetic ingredients that mimic the vanilla flavor, such as vanillin and some others out there. And so this most recent case, uh, Santifol versus Wegmans Food Markets, came out of the Southern District of New York, and the court ruled there that Wegmans gluten-free vanilla cake mix, which was labeled as being naturally flavored, did not mislead consumers as to the source of its vanilla flavor. Um, like many other decisions before it, the Southern District held that the vanilla representation on the package merely told consumers about the flavor of the product, that the cake would taste like vanilla, and didn't make any representations about the specific ingredients used to depart that flavor. Um, and then on, on the natural flavoring piece of it, um, you know, vanillin and some of these other ingredient, ingredients that are typically used to mimic the vanilla flavor can be natural or synthetic based on how they are derived because the plaintiff didn't allege any information about how the vanillin in this particular cake mix product was derived, um, the court granted Wegmans motion to dismiss. Um, as I mentioned, there have been hundreds of these types of cases filed and dozens of them have been dismissed. And so it's pretty incredible to me that we're still seeing new filings from time to time on this issue, um, but they have started to slow in recent months. So the vanilla era may finally be coming to a close, which should be welcome news for a lot of the food companies out there. Um, moving on just across the bridge to Brooklyn, the Eastern District last month dismissed another class action, Warren versus Whole Foods Market, which alleged that Whole Foods had tricked consumers into believing that its instant oatmeal was either sugar-free or low in sugar by listing dehydrated cane juice solids in the ingredient list instead of sugar. <laughs> Um, they also, the plaintiff also pointed to the fact that Whole Foods had displayed pictures of fresh raspberries on the package, you know, suggesting that there were, was a lower amount of sugar in the product. The court clearly disagreed and found that there was no express claim relating to the product's sugar content. And when there are no express claims, the court held the consumers are now trained to look to the ingredient list, which in this case plainly disclosed the dehydrated cane juice solids. And ironically, immediately next to that ingredient list, there was a very prominent disclosure that the product contained 11 grams of sugar, which the court found was hard to miss, that's a quote, <laughs> and found it ultimately improbable that consumers would believe that the oatmeal would be sugar-free or even low in sugar, given that express disclosure of the sugar content. Finally, um, in Bolden versus Barilla America, the Northern District of Illinois, which has seen an increasing number of consumer class actions in the last year or two, um, partially dismissed claims that Barilla had deceptively labeled various pasta sauces as containing no preservatives, even though the, the sauces did contain citric acid, a known preservative. Um, this court dismissed a couple of common law claims implied warranty and negligent misrepresentation, but allowed the primary state consumer fraud claim to proceed into discovery. Uh, and, and preservatives are really an area where, where we're starting to see a lot more litigation, um, particularly um, with respect to um, preservatives that are ingredients that can act as a preservative, but can also be in a product um, without 
serving a preservative function. So that's just something to be conscious of um, going forward when you're thinking about making express claims relating to preservatives on your label. Finally, just a quick wrap up of recent filings that we've seen that impact the food industry. There's nothing truly new to report from the last month or two. It's really been just a continuation of the trends that we've seen over the last year. We've seen a number of cases, and really the plaintiff's bar has been laser focused on certain ingredients and targeting products um, that feature those ingredients, not too um, different from the vanilla case that I discussed earlier. Um, pretty common ingredients that have been targeted of late include fudge-based products when the plaintiffs allege that um, non-dairy ingredients such as vegetable oil or palm oils are used instead of traditional dairy ingredients to support the fudge claims. Um, the omission of real cinnamon in cinnamon-flavored cereal products, the lack of butter in butter snap pretzel products, and the lack or minimal use of whole grains in cracker products that are claimed to be made with whole grains. Um, and then finally, in the last six months or so, we've seen a really big uptick in the number of cases and demand letters alleging that companies are overstating the protein content in a wide variety of products, including cereal, granola bars, protein supplements, protein powders, pancake mix, and even meatballs. And we saw a couple of new filings in this area um, just last month, and we expect to see you know, some additional ones moving forward. So that's what you could expect from the food court. And I'll toss it back to Christy to talk a little bit about the personal care product and supplement side. Thanks, Jacqueline. Um, I want to start by just kind of drawing a, a connection between what you're seeing on the litigation front and possibly what we're going to see coming up from the Food and Drug Administration. Um, so part of, of what Jacqueline was highlighting there on these ingredient class actions um, relates to products that claim to have um, an ingredient that is subject to a standard of identity, or maybe the whole product is subject to a standard of identity. So for example, there have been lawsuits filed saying that, you know, something that claims to have mozzarella cheese is falsely advertised because the cheese product that is in there doesn't meet the standard of identity for mozzarella, um, similar to the fudge issue, right? You're calling it fudge and fudge should be made from, you know, milk and sugar and butter, but the, the ingredient that's in this particular product is made from, from palm oil or something like that, right? Um, and so I'm sure we'll continue to see more litigation around standards of identity. It's worth flagging, though, that um, for a lot of products that are subject to standards of identity and where we've seen a lot of innovation over the last few years, we should expect uh, that the FDA is going to come out with some, some new guidance. They highlighted uh, the labeling of plant-based milk alternatives, the labeling of plant-based alternatives to animal-derived foods. So this is plant-based meats that are becoming increasingly popular uh, in the market. And, and these are products that are subject to standards of identity. Of course, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, what constitutes milk and is it, is it still milk if it comes, you know, if it's soy milk or oat milk or something like this. And milk is of course subject to the standard of identity of being the, you know, a, a lacteal secretion from a, of, of an animal. So that is definitely an area to watch both on the litigation front, but also on the regulatory guidance front. 
A couple of other trends that I wanted to flag are the uh, environmental litigation that we've seen. Of course, everyone is very interested in making climate friendly and climate beneficial claims right now. And we're really seeing an uptick in the interest in these kinds of statements from the plaintiff's bar. Of course, the Federal Trade Commission has said that they plan to update their green guides sometime this year, although I don't know that we have any specific timing on that just yet. Um, but please check out our, our, our blog post for a number of um, entries relating to this kind of litigation and these kinds of challenges, because I think these trends are going to continue. And then finally, um, particularly if you're a company that is selling on a subscription basis, or you have some kind of um, auto ship option, even if you're not selling on a subscription basis, I wanna encourage you to check out two posts that were authored by Jessica Rich, former uh, bureau director at the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, and Paul Singer, um, who recently joined us from the Texas AG's office regarding dark patterns. Um, this is you know, conduct on the part of advertisers that the regulators believe is, is um, deceptive, right? That tricks consumers into, into signing up for something um, where they don't realize that what they're actually signing up for. And in large part, these are disclosure issues um, that are kind of being, you know, branded as dark patterns now, but it really at the core of it, um, these are deception issues. So, so check out, there's, it's a two series, two, two post series on dark patterns. And finally, for any company out there that's using reviews, um, our colleagues, Gonzalo Mann and Donnelly McDowell have, an interesting post on Fashion Nova um, and the FTC's concerns about um, suppressing negative reviews. I know from speaking with a couple of different clients that you know there's software out there that helps them identify potentially concerning reviews. Um, and if your marketers are using that kind of a technique, it's probably best to take a look at that sooner rather than later um, to see if there are some practices there that, that may be of concern should you get any kind of regulatory inquiry. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We really appreciate it. Um, check us out at um, adlawaccess.com and check out Joe's content at kellygreenlawblog.com. And if you're in the cannabis space, cannabislawupdate.com.